Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 33, verse 12. It's on page 1,134 in the Bibles provided for you. As it is the first Sunday of Advent, we will begin our Advent sermon series this morning. For the next four weeks, we're going to follow the lectionary through different um, texts, kind of all over the Bible, which have to do with hope. And more specifically, having to do with hope for the future, hope for what God has promised us. Um, I said a little bit about this earlier, but Advent is just this really interesting liturgical season. It's actually a very strange season, and it's actually very subversive, which is why it doesn't very often get practiced. Remember, if you are here last week, I think it was last week, I talked about imagination, I talked about theological imagination, about how um, we need to be able to see things in our mind that God tells us is real, even when it's really hard to see right in front of us. Well, during Advent, we're definitely doing that. During Advent, we are actually imagining, to some degree, that Jesus hasn't come yet. We're kind of imagining that. We're imagining that the incarnation hasn't happened. We're imagining, we're remembering what it's like to be the people of God before God has truly come to his people. So you'll notice, normally right over here, we have our great big Christ candle, right? On the big golden pedestal, there's the big white candle and it's lit. And every week, it is a a standby in our worship services because it reminds us of the presence of Christ here with us. It's not here. And in fact, um, so the Christ candle is now here. And it's not lit. And that's very radical. The Christ candle is not lit today. Wow. This is a season of longing. This is a season of waiting. It's a very subversive Time of year, it's a very subversive liturgical season. So we're, re- we're remembering what it means to long for God's great intervention. And we're remembering what it means to be a people of hope during days that can feel very, very hopeless. And we're exercising those muscles in us that can so easily become atrophied. We're exercising those muscles that remind us who we are and how we're called to show up in the world as people of hope and as people of grace. So we need to keep our imaginations sharp. And Advent helps us keep our imaginations sharp. Because even though Christ has come, and he has, and even though Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, and it is, today we use some extra theological imagination and we long for another coming of Christ. Another coming of Christ. Because there is so much today in our world that is so wrong And it needs to be made right. So we have Advent. It's not Christmas yet. And it's really hard to hold off Christmas, isn't it? Isn't that kind of uh, ironic that in our secular culture, we're trying to hold off on Christmas? Everybody slow down. Too much Christmas. This is very intentional on the church's part. Because we have work to do first. We have to exercise that hope muscle, and that requires some imagination on our parts. 
So here we go into Advent. Jer- let's have a read. Jeremiah 31, uh, sorry, 33, verses 12 through 18. Listen to God's word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns there will be again, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel. Nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. This is the word of the Lord. Such a beautiful text. I've never preached on it before. Uh, And if, if what I just read is the only exposure to the book of Jeremiah that you've ever had, then you would probably assume that the book of Jeremiah is a very pleasant and very happy book. Because you've got those first two verses, verses 12 and 13, where there is this beautiful promise that the sheep and the shepherds will once again return to the Negev. Beautiful thought. And then there's verses 15 to 18, where this, it's this prophecy about the coming Messiah. I wonder who that's going to be, right? There's this coming Messiah who will restore justice and righteousness among God's people. It's so wonderful. If this is your only sample of the book of Jeremiah, you would assume that it is a very happy and pleasant book. And you would be wrong, because it's not. The book of Jeremiah is probably the most depressing book in all of the Bible. And also, it is literally the longest word-for-word book in the Bible. And yet, there are two or three chapters, depending on how you count it, in the, in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, where suddenly Jeremiah gets really hopeful, and he gets really beautiful, and that's, uh, we've read part of that this morning. The rest of the book is really dark. Here's the story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in the city of Jerusalem. And for 20 years, as he did his priestly duties, he beat a dead horse about how God was going to bring judgment to Israel for three reasons. One, idolatry. They were putting other things before God. Two, they were mistreating the poor among them. And three, they were being harsh 
to immigrants. They were not showing grace and welcome to immigrants. And so for 20 years, Zedekiah, who is the king of Israel, was very, very angry with Jeremiah because Jeremiah was such a bummer. Over and over and over again, everything that he prophesied for 20 years was completely doom and gloom. There was never any good news. There were never any compliments, never any shout out to the national leadership doing their best. Zedekiah thought that Jeremiah had an attitude problem. And after 20 years of Jeremiah the prophet and Zedekiah the king going head to head with Jeremiah predicting doom and gloom over and over and over again and Zedekiah insisting, no, 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 everything's fine, everything's fine. Everything that Jeremiah prophesied came to pass. He was right. Uh, The Babylonians came from the north, just like Jeremiah said that they would. They came kind of slowly, and they came one piece at a time, because the Babylonians were such a strong country, and their military was so strong, and Israel was just so weak, that the Babylonians could literally just take their time pillaging, take their time pilfering. And Israel could do absolutely nothing to stop them. So it was just this slow trickle of the Babylonians at their leisure, waltzing into Israel and taking it piece by piece. Zedekiah, the king, was, of course, angry about this. And he was also very petty. So his response to the Babylonians coming from the north was that he said to Jeremiah, we've had enough of you. And so before Jeremiah could go on a I told you so tour, he put him in prison. Zedekiah put Jeremiah in prison. Uh, He imprisoned him in the temple court. It was kind of a house arrest. And Jeremiah was not allowed to leave there. And the king's reason for imprisoning Jeremiah was this. He said, we've had enough of your doom and gloom. We've had enough of your bad news. We've had 20 years of you telling us that everything is falling apart. And now that everything is falling apart, your bad attitude can just stay over there. We don't want to hear you anymore. And then guess what happened? As soon as Jeremiah was imprisoned in the temple, his message changed completely. He became Filled with hope. (laughs) His message became filled with hope. After 20 years of things being pretty good and him saying, no, there's a whole bunch of doom and gloom coming, once the doom and gloom came, he flipped. He became filled with hope. And instead of prophesying about how God was going to call his people to task for their idolatry and for their mistreatment of the poor and for their cruelty to immigrants... Jeremiah began to prophesy about how God was going to save them from their exile. On a dime, he switched. He began to prophesy about how God was going to bring shalom, how he was going to bring peace to every aspect of their broken society. And he said, he said, Israel, God has plans for you. God has plans to give you hope and a future. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. God has plans to do beautiful and wonderful things to you and through you. He has plans to restore your culture and your economy and your land and your temple and your society. Jeremiah switched. Suddenly, he was the photo negative of himself. 
In fact, here's an interesting story. Not long after Jeremiah was imprisoned in the temple courts, he received instruction from God that he was to purchase a plot of land in Jerusalem. Even as the Babylonians were slowly waltzing unopposed into Israel, taking everything for their own, Jeremiah invested in a piece of land in Jerusalem. Now, this is not financial rocket science, right? If your country is being invaded (laughs) by barbarians from the north, if your country is being pilfered, your land is suddenly worth less than zero, right? This is suddenly the time where Jeremiah decides it's time to buy. And so he assembles his life savings, which really was not that much, and he purchased a plot of land. It made no earthly sense for Jeremiah to make this investment. And that was exactly the point. Here's the question of the day. Why would you invest in a tragedy? Why would you invest in a tragedy? Why would you invest in brokenness? 20 years earlier, when things in Israel seemed like they were okay, Jeremiah had nothing but criticism for his culture and their authorities. But then when everything falls apart, when tragedy strikes, when everything becomes broken, suddenly he's ready to invest. Why? Why would you invest in a tragedy? Investing in a tragedy is one of the hardest things that a person will ever have to do. Investing in a tragedy is one of the hardest things that a person will ever have to do. Here's what I mean by that. I don't know if it's a Protestant thing. I don't know if it's a Midwestern thing. I don't know if it's a human thing. But very often in my work, when I see someone encounter a great tragedy in their, in their own lives, very often their first instinct is to run away from it. To run away from it. To do everything that they can to not fully acknowledge it. To do everything that they can to not feel anything about it. To do everything that they can to not acknowledge what's going on and not invest in anything in their tragedy. And so the last thing that they want to do when tragedy strikes is to invest in it. To actually go see the therapist when you should go see the therapist. To confront the addiction when you should confront the addiction. To address the behavior. To address the credit card debt. To have that really difficult conversation. To begin to work to forgive the person who has wronged you. When tragedy strikes, the last thing people want to do is invest in those tragedies. They would much rather just look the other way. Over the years, I've, I've talked a lot with people 
who have lost someone very special to them. And some of them, as they share with me about what their lives are like after their tragedy, some of them will tell me some version of deciding to invest in their tragedy. They'll say something like, something like, I figured that I could try to run away from the situation or I could lean into it. I, can try to, I figured I could try to run away from the pain or I could just start to feel it. I can pretend that this grief isn't killing me or I can invest in the grief and explore the grief and deal honestly and radically with the reality of my situation. And for many of them, it's that conscious investment in their grief that not only honors the loss of their loved one, but also helps them grow through their tragedy. Why would you invest in a tragedy? Why would you invest in brokenness? Because that's where the growth is. Because that's where the hope is. When it finally seemed like all hope was lost, when Israel had finally hit rock bottom, when Jeremiah was imprisoned in the temple court and Babylon was slowly invading from the north, Jeremiah made a seemingly foolish investment by purchasing a plot of land that everyone agreed had no value. Advent is the time of year when we remember how God when it finally seemed like all hope was lost and all of humanity was imprisoned in the dungeon of their own making, God made a seemingly foolish investment by purchasing an entire cosmos that had no apparent value and he purchased it with the life of his own son. And every expert agreed that it was pure foolishness. This is why we invest in our own tragedies. This is why we do not turn away from the pain. This is why we acknowledge the sorry state of our reality. This is why we invest in our own brokenness. This is why we insist upon being a people of hope even when it seems like the time for hope has passed, that is exactly when we double down on our investment. Because that's what we do. Our universe has been purchased. And the one who holds the deed is the one who insists to us that there is reason to hope. He's the one who tells us that once again our towns and cities will be rebuilt. 
Once again, sheep and shepherd will be living out in the Negev. And once again, a truly righteous and truly just leader out of the branch of David will bring ultimate peace and shalom to his people. So you know what? We don't give up. We don't give up on situations. We don't give up on the world. We don't give up on people. We, we, we establish healthy boundaries. But we don't give up on people. And we don't give in to cynicism. And we continue to invest our radical hope into situations that often seem hopeless because we live on the small plot of land that God has purchased and he has promised us redemption. Friends of Jesus Christ, what is the field that you're buying? What is the field that you're purchasing? while we face exile? Where are you placing your radical investment? What is the dark place to which you are carrying your light of hope? We are a people of hope, or at least we ought to be. We are citizens of a purchased plot of land. That's who we are. And we wait for the return of our foolish investor. And while we wait, we hope. Why would we invest in a tragedy? Why would we invest in brokenness? Because that's where the growth is. Because that's where the hope is. And that's where Christ is coming to make all things new. So we go to the hard places, folks. It's what we do. We go to the hard places. We go to the hard places inside of ourselves. We go to the hard places in our family systems. We go to the hard places in our communities. We validate one another's pain. We normalize the human struggle. And we carry our light into dark places. And we invest in people and places that the world would deem foolish. Because we know that this particular plot of land, this particular cosmos, has infinite value because it has already been purchased. And one day, again, there will be shepherds and sheep in the Negev. And when the shepherds and the sheep come back to the Negev, it will be this land that you and I today invest in. This land. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, while we await for your coming, we thank you for your radical investment in this radically broken world. Help us, dear brother, 
to channel your perspective on the universe and your confidence in the promises of God to invest in the places that are broken, to carry whatever light we have into those broken places and to believe that once again the sheep and the shepherds will return to the Negev. We thank you for your investment in this plot of land in which we live. Give us hope as we wait. In your name we pray. Amen.